0: Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsome.
1: I'm Charlotte
2: Bond. And I'm Juliet McKenna.
0: So today we are going to be talking about women who fight. Now, let's just get one thing straight before we go any further. Women have always fought. And unfortunately, we don't seem to see that reflected very much in our SFF. And, you know, why is this still a thing? Why aren't we seeing more women fighting in our... Novels, you know, it's it's fiction, guys. We can make this stuff up. But not only that, in real life, women have always fought. Today, with us, we have Juliet McKenna. And Juliet, do you want to uh, introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Uh, hello, I am a writer of primarily epic fantasy, sword, sorcery, wizards, dragons, dirty work at the crossroads, which inevitably involves a fair amount of swordplay. Um, fortunately. I have a background in martial arts, which involves a certain amount of swordplay. Uh, I've also done live action role playing and battle reenactments, which have given me uh, a whole set of useful insights into the realities of physical combat compared to what you sometimes see on the page and certainly compared to what you see on screen.
0: Wonderful. So let's just, I mean, let's kick things off with obviously, you know, women have always fought. So. You know, if in history, you know, Viking warriors, you've got, you know, all these amazing women warriors of the past, and yet they're so often overlooked in history, and then, you know, it, it's kind of one of those things that's um, a very common kind of excuse for when women are missing from these things. Oh, you know, say, oh, we based it in history, you know, it's it's historically accurate, and first of all, all these things are all made up, set in, like, weird and wonderful universes, so that that doesn't fly anyway. And even if it did, women were fighting. So
2: thoughts well, on that? <laughs> my first question when somebody says, yes, but it's history, is which history and written by whom? Because if you are looking at the history of ancient Greece, uh, the history of ancient Rome, then yeah, you know, there were not legions of women. There were not female hoplites. However, The reasons that women didn't fight in those societies were driven by the values and political and social pressures of those societies. There was nothing intrinsic to gender determining on who went on the battlefield. And then you need to think about who is writing the history that you're reading. If you are reading the history of Europe through pretty much up to and including the Second World War, The vast majority of the history that you will be reading, certainly before the 70s, was written by men, for men, about men. And that determines the focus of those histories. So the ah yes but it's history is simply not an excuse. And I mean when you come back to the Greek and Roman thing, um, the history is the great deeds of great men notion persists in education, certainly in England and to a lesser extent, I think, across Europe, but because it's Enlightenment thinking. The Enlightenment holds up the great classical civilizations of the past, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, as the ideal, civilized, the people to emulate, and if it is somehow taken as inherent that men go out and do manly deeds on the battlefield while women stay at home and tend home, keep the home fires burning then that those default assumptions persist with remarkable tenacity well julia i know
1: one of the things that megan sent round was a, a link to the ever reliable wikipedia and women warriors <laughs> in literature and culture but it did make the interesting point that warrior women in current kind of uh, literature are very much made out to be anomalies and the idea is that it's okay to have warrior women because they are the anomalies and the status quo and the women who stay at home are fine so you're okay to have these strange people so you sound like a lady who's read a lot of historical stuff do you find there's something similar in the rare mentions they have of female warriors previously are they still seen as anomalies or are they sort of put up there with the likes of Julius caesar and, and those kind of people
2: Certainly in history re- written pre the 1970s, yes, uh, the they are held up as the exception, and again coming back to the dead hand of Enlightenment thinking um, as an anomaly that is primarily associated with barbarians, because again the ancient Greeks came across uh, Scythian culture, Central European cultures, uh, which are the basis of the myth of the Amazon, and with women who fought with the Celts against the Romans. You know, this is barbarism. Barbarism means you have women fighting. And again, that persists remarkably. It's a remarkably persistent theory um, through the historical record. But it also has to do with the incredibly European-centered view of history. Um, if, for example, you start looking into the history of the Indian subcontinent, with a view of looking at events in 1857, not as the Indian Mutiny, as it was taught when I was at Brunale school, but the mm-hmm. First War of all, Indian Independence, you can find some incredibly powerful women leading um, the struggle against the colonisation of the continent by the British Empire. Well, you were talking about Amazonian
1: women being sort of very brutal and sort of very um, I think there's obviously the idea of sort of masculinity and anomalies, but I wondered how you felt about Joan of Arc fitting into all that. Because one of the things that really bugged me about Joan of Arc is that they had such a strong link with God, which on the one hand, you know, made her sort of saintly, but on the other hand, also made her kind of mad. And it was almost like this woman couldn't be a fantastic leader without God, A, giving her strength, and B, making her mad at the same time. So, I mean, how do you feel that Joan of Arc fits in with all the the other representations?
2: Can I just pick up a point about the Amazons? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. The Amazons weren't brutish. They weren't faux males. They weren't um, an anomaly. They weren't sort of women trying to be men. Um, One of the interesting things that's been circulating is the DNA testing of Viking warriors all of whom were assumed to be men because this was an assumption based on grave goods. Now that uh, Central Asian archaeology and steppe civilization archaeology is um, getting into its stride post the former Soviet Union, DNA testing is being done on warriors found in um, Central Asian burials it is impossible to determine from the grave goods whether they are men or whether they are women. Um, And again, frequently, large numbers of them are turning out to have been genetically women. Interestingly, they are also coming across uh, skeletons which are buried with wholly domestic accoutrements, who turn out to be genetically male, which raises a whole lot of fascinating questions about gender expression and identity in a culture where the ability of women or men to be fighters was uh, very much based on the fact that the fighting was done on horseback and primarily with archery, which means that physical differences did not come into play nearly so much. What records we do have of Amazonian culture, um, particularly Scythians, as reflected through sources like Herodotus, um, no, I mean, you know, they they were good, they were girls who appreciated the finer things in life, it wasn't a question that to be a warrior woman you had to be some sort of thug. Anyway, back to Joan of Arc. (laughs) Um, Again this comes back to who's telling the history. So much of the reporting and the writing about Joan of Arc means that she has to be exceptional or she has to be exceptionally bad. She can't just be a, a warrior who happened to be a woman. She must either be exceptionally blessed by God or in league with the devil. And because she is being used as a propaganda tool by one side or the other. So it's incredibly difficult to get anything approaching um, a realistic view of uh, a figure like that.
1: Because one of the things I was quite interested in is there's an article by Tor.com of Five Amazing Women Warriors of the Middle oh. Ages. And they had Joanna of Flanders in it, who sounded like she kicked far more off than Joan of Arc. And she was just um a mum defending her kids in you know, in the castle in sieges and things and spotted a, a break in, in Emily enemy lines and said, Right, that's it. I'm I'm gonna go out of there and, and get rid of them and, and oh, you know, while I'm there I'll take the next town as well. This and I all of this. But, again, I'd never heard of her until I read this article on tour.com, and you wonder why someone like Joan of Arc is held up as fantastic, whereas someone like Joanna of Flanders is forgotten by history.
2: Because very few women are going to aspire to be Joan of Arc, because that didn't end well. Um, whereas, average yeah, woman could look at Joanna of Flanders, or any number of women in the English Civil War. Um, I can't lay my hands on it exactly at the moment. I've got a great book called, I think it's Women All on Fire, um, about women... Playing decisive roles, particularly defending their homes in sieges and the like during the English Civil War, um, who were very rapidly written out of the historical record because that didn't suit the narrative that the winners wanted to promote. But one of the interesting things is how persistent these women continue to be in folk tales, folk songs. And as it were, the unofficial history, because the victors write the history, but the vanquished create the folklore. Oh, that's a very good point. I like that. Can you say it again? What was it? The victors write the history, but the vanquished create the folklore.
1: That's fantastic. That, there's a quote right there. Thank you, Julia.
2: <laughs> I'm a writer. I do words. <laughs> All right. Let's
0: take a step back a bit for for just a minute, and let's just talk about fight scenes and war in fiction specifically science fiction fantasy horror um you know like what are some of the most common mistakes um and you know what do we love about it what what needs work i mean personally um i think lucy will will join me in this but i find a lot of fight scenes just really boring and i end up you know kind of scanning through them quickly because it's just repetitive and i they never seem to add anything different
2: Fight scenes are extremely hard to write. Um, For one thing, fight scenes that go on and on and on are not only tedious, they're also extremely inaccurate. A real fight is extremely quick. Certainly, if it's between one person who knows what they're doing and somebody else who doesn't, in which case it's over really fast, but even with two people who do know what they're doing, a real fight will be over very, very quickly.
3: Mm. So this idea of duels within greater battles is actually quite misleading because that's what you tend to have when you when you find an epic fantasy that that actually a battle is comprised of many, many duels, but those duels can can often be short and brutal um and it, you tend not to find that with a lot of writers they tend to kind of embellish about the, the you know the, the thrust and the riposte and that they do this kind of elegant dance throughout this you know it very it, in a very kind of unrealistic um way considering the environment in which they're currently fighting that's what gets me that kind of blow by blow account which we don't really need as as readers
2: no, I mean I, I tend to feel these are written by writers who at a very um, impressionable age watched Robin Sherwood with Basil Rathbone and Douglas Fairbanks Jr um, leaping up and down staircases in uh, Sherwood Castle with Olivia Haviland looking on in soft focus um, No, the best what ha- this is what happens when people write fight scenes based on what they have read in fiction rather than what they have read in fact and one of the great things about um, in recent decades, last 10-20 years, is the amount of first-person accounts of warfare that you can now get hold of. You can get things like the Diary of a Napoleonic Foot Soldier, you can get all sorts of authentic memoirs, journals um, and resources from people who've actually been in battle in all sorts of different historical periods. And those are actually a much better guide to writing uh, a realistic fight scene.
1: Juliet, you mentioned there are a lot of really good factual books that uh, we can read for historical fight scenes, but do you think there's any writers out there in science fiction or fantasy who have managed to get a really good imaginary fight scene spot on? You can say you if you wish.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, me. Uh, uh, I think one of the... There is a writer who I probably shouldn't name, um, who after a, an online exchange about issues writing fight scenes, um, I, I've written a couple of articles about um, self-defense and Aikido, um, and particularly the myth that uh downing a chap with a kick to the balls is either easy, quick, or effective. Um it is none of these things. Um, and I can expand on that at length. Anyway, um, and a writer got in touch with me and said, um, would you have a read of this fight scene that I've just written and give me some technical pointers? And he sent the piece over, and in terms of effective writing, it was absolutely A+. plus. I could picture what was happening superbly. It was clear, it was crisp, who was doing what, to whom, when and how. Brilliant. In terms of actually understanding what was going on, it was an F-minus <laughs> because he was described... I had found either fight clips on YouTube, whatever. He was describing what he was seeing. He had no understanding of what was happening. Now, it was so, good, so, so well written that I thought, aha, right, the... Martial arts technique you're describing there is in fact called a koshnagi. Um and what is actually happening is X, Y, and Z, and I explained the mechanics of it and the process. And then he had envisaged one combatant following that up with a certain set of other moves, to which I said, yeah, really not a good idea, much better idea to do a technique called um had akajimi naked strangle, um, which involves breaking someone's neck and using their own body weight against them. And so we had an interesting discussion about the specific difference between a choke and a strangle, because they are different things. If anyone ever reads my <laughs> reads my internet, they're going to get quite worried. So he went away and he rewrote this scene. And the thing is that the chances are 99 people out of 100 reading it as originally written, would not have known what was wrong with it. But for the one person in the hundred who would have read that and said, no, nah, that's not right, it would have killed the book dead. Um, which, again, I'm slightly wandering from the question, but uh, this for me underlines why is it is so important for a writer to do their research, to understand what's going on. You don't have to be an expert, but talking to experts, reading writing by experts, I think, is vital because you then underpin everything that you're doing with that extra uh, verisimilitude, conviction, that indefinable aura of reality that means that you, the reader can believe everything they're reading. If if the fight scenes look or sound a bit dodgy, you're certainly not going to sell them dragons.
0: <laughs> what about um, if you're inventing a kind of a fight style as well? Like, How far from fight styles that are around in the real world can we really go to still hold on to that kind of feeling of being realistic or believable in in a fantasy or science fiction world
2: certainly martial arts in zero gravity is uh, an interesting one to discuss and explore because you know action and reaction start to happen very differently and when so much um certainly unarmed combat relies on leverage if you take away gravity hijinks will ensue But it's actually very difficult to reinvent um, too far uh, fight styles. The more I talk to people who practice uh, European martial arts, historic European martial arts, um, the more similarities and coordinate, what's the word, um, correspondences I see with what I know from Oriental martial arts up to including the way that you might pressure your sword hilt, the way you move. And the differences will frequently be determined by things like armor and the availability of steel. Uh, logistics is uh, materials available, are going to influence fight styles and how fight styles develop. Mm-hmm. Um, more than anything else. So, if I were wanting to invent uh, some completely new sort of um, fight system, the first thing I would be doing is looking at the environment and what was available.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about was that in terms of writing, or you know, the difference of and the the different. Um, problems that arise when writing about, say, from a first person perspective of a soldier on the front line, or maybe a third person, you know, bird's eye view of a battle with thousands of people, or even, you know, taking that um, a first person view of a battle, but from a general, maybe giving the orders rather than, you know, fighting there um, in the front lines.
2: Yeah, I mean, working out who's where and doing what um, is incredibly important. And again, this is where reading first-hand accounts of people who've actually been in battle or doing something like live-action role-play, you know, in the dark in a muddy common on Saturday night, um, you will very rapidly work out that you have not got a clue what the cunning wizard with his spellbook Ten Paces Behind You, is plotting to do. This is not like playing Dungeons and Dragons when everyone's got a coffee and a hobnob. Um, <laughs> the only thing you will be aware of and focused on is the guy in the orc mask on the other end of your sword, who, if you don't kill him, he will kill you. Um, so down and dirty grunts in the front line um, really is not a good point of view for getting an impression of a battle. You can, unless you want the grunt in the front line point of view, which is going to be limited to what is immediately in front of him within arm's reach. When I was writing the Chronicles of the Lescari Revolution, um, and the middle book of that trilogy <laughs> titled, unsurprisingly, Blood in the Water, is all about battles. Um, there are many, many battles in that book. And finding different ways to give an overview of the battle from different characters' point of view was a real challenge. Uh, Certainly, one of the characters ended up as a galloper taking messages from the high command to different units across the battle. Um, And that was a good way of giving the overview. Um, But you can't do that with every battle, it very rapidly becomes very, very repetitious.
1: So who do you think are the best characters within a battle to take um, the perspective of? I mean, does it change every time you write a battle scene or are there ones that you find it really easy to write?
2: To a certain extent that'll be determined by the story um, and who is the point of view character at the time and what do I want them to get out of this battle? Do I want them to get out of this battle terrified, running for home, hideously wounded, wanting to know where the baggage train is so they can go and loot it, Um, so or seeing the big picture and realising what the vital piece of intelligence that must now be carried to high command in the tower in the next town might be. It really does depend on the circumstance of the battle, the terrain, the different forces involved, what the what the stakes are, what's at, uh, at risk for this battle. Um, I don't think there is one simple answer. It has to be integral to the story you're telling at the time.
0: Um, let's get into women who fight. So let's talk about, um, first of all, the uh, some of the awful tropes we see around women who fight in science fiction and fantasy. So, I mean, Julia, you mentioned sword and sorcery. Mm. <laughs> and... I mean there are some definite problematic uh, tropes there with women who fight um and you have you see things like so for example one of my favorite women who fights uh, is Xena uh, obviously um but also there's potentially problematic um issues with characters like her in similar fantasy genres you know where they it kind of becomes this you know they kind of the they become Amazonian-type figures rather than exploring any other kind of women who, who fight in a fantasy world.
2: The ones I hate is where it just turns into a slugfest. fest. Yeah, hack, thud, <laughs> hack, thud, hack, thud, um, which feeds into the male-centric view of battle, certainly one-on-one combat, as a, a test of stamina. And it really isn't. Um, Effective fighting isn't a test of stamina, it's a test of skill, and women have always fought very effectively in what you might call asymmetric battles. Um, Samurai women in classical Japan were trained in the naginata, which is a pole arm, basically imagine a very, very sharp carving knife strapped to the end of a pole. Now, if you are in a one-on-one physical strength, trying to overbear physical strength sort of fight, which is actually extremely rare, um, then a woman is naturally going to be at a disadvantage. But there are so many ways in which a woman can be at an advantage, even in a one-on-one sword fight, um, provided she doesn't end up with this uh, hilt-locked, grimace struggle, shove um, cliche of uh, a sword struggle. Women will win by being quicker on their feet, swifter to see and to take advantage of um, vulnerabilities. So we obviously
1: have very gender stereotyped ideas of battle it being very much a, a man's world and everything. Um, and I wondered how you, Juliet, dealt with that with women within your world, because I know you gave a link to a very fantastic Scott Lynch article. Um, about how the world he created was a fantasy series where women were naturally within the frame. I mean, he was talking about pirates, and he wrote about whole history um, in response to a troll, saying how it, there'd been a history of female pirates and a history of buccaneers, and they were all very well respected. But in a very standard fantasy series where you were expecting to see men on the battlefield, how do you introduce women within that do the men kind of go oh she's a woman oh that's cool or are women just accepted within the battlefields
2: i create cultures where populated by a range of interesting people some of whom happen to be fighters of whom some happen to be women the idea that women do not belong in warfare is a social and cultural construct particularly in europe uk and the usa um If you do away with a couple of millennia of um, Christian cultural domination and uh, the attitudes and biases of the 20th century in particular, um, actually so many of those problems disappear. Um, And it's interesting now that women are serving in the armed forces, um, modern contemporary armed forces. um, Prejudice still exists. There are still many issues uh, remaining. But on a one-to-one interpersonal level, um, once a woman has proved herself to be reliable and trustworthy and not about to get you killed, um, that prejudice does tend to vanish. So when I'm creating um, a fantasy culture, I look at the cultural and societal and particularly religious and political underpinnings. And if you take away the underpinnings which wants to keep women in, tending the hearth and home, um, then you can actually just create a society in which women can do a whole lot of other things. One of the things you do have to look into is effective contraception so that women um, don't spend all lot of their time being determined by their biology. But again, one of the interesting uh, angles of history that you very, very rarely read is just how effectively uh, some women in certain cultures could manage family planning. Uh, without the men knowing anything
1: about it. I must admit, one of my um, enduring visions from my Latin lessons when I was in secondary school was about um, leather condoms that women used to wash out and hang out to dry. That that image has never left me.
2: Sponges, olive oil. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, all, uh, <laughs> it's probably a whole separate podcast on that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, well, I mean, one thing that um, sort of, I'm conflicted about, I should say, is sort of this, um, I like using Brienne of Tarth from Game of Thrones as the, oh. the kind of representative of this, but where you have these excellent women fighters who just become overly, you know, masculine. And, and, um, but then with Brienne, I like it because it's kind of her refusing to give in to the expectation that she must be feminine. So, but there's kind of, you know, it's a, It's a fine line to walk because I find a lot of these female characters who are excellent fighters just get portrayed as, you know, really trying to be more masculine and rejecting the feminine.
2: Brienne works for me because she's exceptional in terms of the culture. Um, And she's basically bucking that trend. The other thing is that Brienne is exceptional. One of the other things that you see in Game of Thrones is that the men who are good at warfare are also exceptional, um, and I think that that's one of the things that, as a writer, you need to remember, is that to be there is there are very very few aspects of being a great warrior that are gender determined. Um, the ability to train, the ability to think, the ability to react, are yeah. You know, it, it, these things are equally possible for man or woman. Um, physical strength, sometimes in some circumstances, but Nelson, Britain's greatest sailor, I mean he was incredibly short. Um, I can't remember exactly how short offhand, let us see if the uh, internet can tell us. Um, but in warfare where physical strength isn't uh, a requirement, uh, again these... Um, 1.68 metres, that's about the same height as me, so that means, what, about 5 foot 6? Um, yeah, Horatio Lawson.
1: Well, one of the things I really liked about Game of Thrones was it not only put women in the centre of battle, but I distinctly remember Tyrion being in it as well. Oh. And a dwarf is not necessarily your typical fighter, and yet he holds his own, and... I know, doesn't his squire save him a little bit at the end? But he's he's done pretty well up till that point. So I kind of always remember the fight scenes from those point of view as well, and finding it quite inclusive and quite refreshing to see it from the point of view of of someone you would normally put in a minority kicking quite a bit of ass.
2: Um, Tyrion saves himself through sheer panic and rapid improvisation with a shield, as I recall, at some point. Um, and that's yeah, you know, one of the other things is. Um, you know, he who would, survival in a battle is a lot about being absolutely determined to survive and determined to kill the other guy, girl, woman, whoever. Yes, um, but also one of the other things about um, the battles in Game of Thrones is um, you know people who aren't trained die very rapidly, and the those are wars of attrition. you want basically he who wins kills more of the other men's army first but you've also the use of things like cavalry uh, and encirclement techniques and all those sorts of things have been very well thought through one of the things i think that leads to tedious fight scenes battle scenes or the notion of war in fantasy fiction is the idea that this must somehow be a fair fight uh, any professional soldier aims to make a fight as unfair as possible in their own advantage.
0: That is a very good point. I like that.
2: Well, if you think about the, going back to these, these notion of these duels on the battlefield, um, you get uh, people being influenced by people watching things like fencing. Um, Dueling was a sport. Yeah, it could kill you, um, but fencing grew out of it's a sportified version of it. Boxing is a sport, it's brutal, it's damaging, it's all the rest of it, but it is still a sport. So there are rules, there are um, strictures, conventions uh, to make it fair. No, real warfare is not about being fair. It is not about giving the other guy uh, an even chance. Um, Yes, peace through superior firepower can be an issue, that being one of the great American doctrines of the 19th century. Um, but equally, that doesn't always work either, as they very rapidly discovered in Vietnam. Again, which brings us back to asymmetric warfare. Asymmetric warfare can be very, very interesting, both on the, uh, at the battle level, you know, big forces going up against big forces, or on the individual level, if you think about gladiator movies, you've got the guy in a loincloth with a net and a trident, um, versus the very heavily armoured guy in the arena, with the helmet, the, sh- uh, the armour and the sh- sword. Um, what makes that an interesting fight is the fact that each side has a certain advantages over the other. It's not a fair fight, it is an interesting fight. A fair fight leads to stalemate, that's what you've got on the Western Front in World War One.
0: Let's talk about some mistakes people make in battles, come on.
2: Well, uh, it's more things that... Uh, mistakes that writers make and one of the things that really irritates me is when I read a fight scene, whether that is a barroom brawl or mass ranks on reaching to the far horizons, is lack of emotional reaction and response um, uh, from the people actually involved in the battle um, to the responses from people to being wounded, to seeing other people being wounded. Um, on the other ha- the other side of that coin, though, being in warfare doesn't mean inevitably a lifetime of PTSD. Now, the treatment of what has always been uh, a factor uh, for um, former combatants, whether you called it shell shock, battle fatigue, PTSD, or whatever, yes, yeah, it's a very real problem and it's a very real uh, issue that needs sympathetic handling, but um if you think about my grandparents generation my grandfather's generation um thousands upon thousands of men went through horrific experiences in the second world war came home and lived perfectly peaceable uh, profitable and yeah, happy contented successful lives afterwards so i think that's one of the things that i think um irritates me the other thing is that when i read I think this is probably something I see more on the screen than on the page is um, a misunderstanding of what wounds are immediately disabling and what wounds somebody can actually sustain, which will ultimately be lethal in 20 minutes or half an hour. But in that 20 minutes or half an hour, they can continue trying and killing people. Um, The notion that somebody is stabbed through the torso goes arg, falls down with barely a twitch. That's simply not how it happens. Um, whereas the notion that somebody can take a massive blow to the skull, get up, carry on, and keep on fighting, is equally problematic. Um, also, you know, a hefty blow to the back of the head is not the equivalent of an anaesthetic. Um, so I think there's. Often insufficient attention paid to the reality of the physicality of warfare and fighting. Um, again, there's some very interesting stuff to be read um, in the archaeological record. If you look at where they've done studies of bones recovered from battlefields and mass graves, the vast majority of people are killed either by head wounds or knee wounds. Now you won't be killed by a knee wound but you can end up lying on the battlefield and bleeding to death, because once you're down, you're as good as dead.
1: That's really interesting. I really want to see a major fantasy series where someone dies with a knee wound on the battlefield. That sounds like a really nice twist.
2: Well, it's one of the things that really makes me laugh about Skyrim. You know, I used to be an adventurer like you until I took an arrow to the knee. I was just (laughs) about
3: to say that. Oh, my God. The the gif was in my head, flashing.
2: (laughs) One of my sons has a T-shirt with that on. Um, I don't think he really understood why I laughed quite so long and loud I, when I first saw him reading it. But uh, yeah, knees, knees, knees are vulnerable um, in close quarters of combat, um, and I have in fact written a long and detailed post about this uh, on my blog. Um, I would never attempt. Yeah, I would go for a man's knees with much more uh, determination than I would try and. Uh, get him in the nuts.
3: Um, what about hamstringing? Because you read a lot about hamstringing and it's something I've used myself without really understanding um, the, the potential for uh, disabling an opponent.
2: Well, again, um, I... do you know where the hamstrings are? Um, I I kind of thought they, they were
3: up, running up the back of the leg. <laughs> well, whereabouts? Uh, well, the thing is, I do yoga, and they do—they talk a lot about hamstrings in yoga. Right, yes, okay, back of the knee. So uh, I was thinking it must be yeah. either, that they must, they must be at the back of the, the knee and the back of the thigh, because they must go all the way up at some, I don't know. Well,
2: it's, it's, what connect, it's what connects the muscle to the joint and the bone. Um, right. And, yeah, basically, if you hamstring somebody, or indeed a horse, um, then basically that leg is not going to work and they will fall over, because uh, hopping as a strategy in the middle of a battle, really not that effective. Um, and again, once somebody is down, they are as good as dead. Basically, the injury to the knee puts you on the ground, and then you get stabbed through the head.
3: Ah, so it's quite a good place to attack then. To oh, yeah, very the much.
2: Um, and One of the um, best things in Game of Thrones, of course, is Dario Naharis outside the walls of wherever it is, Um, and your man charges him who obviously has been reading far too much heroic fantasy fiction written by people who don't understand warfare and uh, he ignores the man completely and takes out the horse. Yes I remember the scene very clearly. Um, and, And hamstring is the classic infantry tactic against cavalry on a battlefield you don't you don't bother with the man you take out the horse. Because when the man hits the ground at a rate of knots, he's flat on his back and, oh look, um, stabbed through the head.
3: And, and that comes back to, um, you know, making the fight as unfair as
2: possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, you know, um, you know, the courtly cult of chivalry and all the rest of it, that's fine for poems and dalliances and uh, all the rest of it, but it has no place in warfare.
0: Yeah, this is bringing back so much Age of Empires for me and what kinds of units are best against other kinds of units.
1: (laughs) Oh, God, I'm useless at that game. (laughs) (laughs) Villager Rush! I'd like to ask a question that um, is probably applicable to Juliet and myself. Um, It's about mothers uh, and mothers on the battlefield. So I find that women warriors are either very, very masculine or are motivated solely by motherhood. So we were talking about Joanna of Flanders earlier and she was... You know part of it was that she was fighting for her son and heir within the um within the castle. But I tend to find that an awful lot of people within, sorry an awful lot of women within um fiction tend to be solely motivated by it. And I quite like Ripley and Sarah Connor because they seem to be exceptions. They seem to be motivated partly by motherhood but also by a general feeling that they should save humanity. Uh, I mean, what do you think of um, books you've read and TV that you've watched about the roles of mothers within warfare and how they are portrayed?
2: Uh, I share your irritation that you you have a a binary choice between the uh, woman who is going to subsume her femininity to be just as good as a man, ha-ha, or fighting purely and solely because uh, for reasons that are defined by her relationships with men. Um, Sarah Connor, hmm, yeah, yeah, um, I think she's saving humanity incidentally to saving John. For me, mother should, motherhood should be completely incidental to it, um, you know, whether you are a mother or not should have absolutely no bearing on your effectiveness uh, as a fighter. Yeah, I do Aikido, um, of the senior female black belts that I know, some of us are mothers, some of us are not. Um, it has absolutely no bearing on our skills or um, attitudes. Uh, the only thing that it did uh, affect me was it was quite difficult to train when my children were small, um, following the effects of two groups caesareans. And uh, the fact that my husband is the club instructor, so getting a babysitter was a real pain. <laughs> so the only impact that, um, but uh, I did. Well, I've been tra- back training for a while, and um, one of the senior male black belts in the organisation I train with um, was pontificating about how women lose their focus and their commitment to martial arts once they've had babies. Mm. Um, yeah. So I tapped him on the shoulder and said, "Well, I was currently spending between 100 and 125 pounds a month on babysitting to in uh able me to continue training. Uh how much was he spending? Oh well done. <laughs> and he mumbled and shuffled off. Um so you know but that's a very specific case. Um in terms of a fantasy environment, I don't think being a mother should have any uh brain it at all. In terms of women warriors, um uh, my favourite Zoe in Python.
0: Yes, good choice.
2: She is a huge, she is a, a supremely effective soldier and fighter who, incidentally, happens to be a woman. And it also happens to be a married a woman. Success, a married woman, uh, a successful loving relationship with a man who is not in no sense threatened by her capabilities because she is expert in her field and he is expert in his. And they're not in direct competition.
1: Definitely, she would top my list of proper <laughs> female warriors as well.
0: I mean, for me, uh, I'd say definitely Princess Leia is up there for me because, I mean, what I always loved about her was that she was so committed to an idealistic cause and that was pretty awesome for me. So she was strategic, she was tough, and she could fight, but she would always sort of take the um, the high road before going with the guns sort of thing. So she was really... Um, a big inspiration for me when i was a kid because i wanted to be her but i wanted to
2: hugely hugely important for me um (laughs) star wars first 77 i was 12 and just starting to get to grips with the idea of feminism and oh yes princess leia was was the one
0: i just wanted to give a shout out to um to two characters but just generally like this kind of a trope which I see coming up more often which I really really love is that when you have a female character who's kind of the book nerd, the smart one but who also will then get you know stuck right into the action as well so um, I'm thinking Hermione from Harry Potter obviously and um, the other one I was thinking of was Jasna from the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson and I really just love that because you know you get just because you're a book nerd doesn't mean you can't be awesome at fighting.
2: Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what about the, the ninth rain? rain? Yeah. <laughs> who writes books and has three grades of black belt. Um, yeah. And is you know, a fairly round, middle-aged grey-haired woman in glasses. I mean, Gosh, I... that sounds
1: so familiar, Juliet. Who on earth could you be describing there? <laughs>
2: yeah, well, you know, how dangerous could I possibly be? Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the great things I like about uh, John Meany's first novel, um, which I should have to tell but can't actually say naturally because I've just mentioned it, um, you know, his uh, lead character is a middle-aged, grey-haired woman um, who's extremely effective at martial arts. And I read this book and I thought, wow, yeah, why, why do we not see this more often in, uh, in science fiction? Such an obvious choice for a lead character. <laughs>
1: There we are. There's our our next lead character for all our novels. Lucy, who did you mention? The Ninth Reign? I don't I don't know that one. Oh, it's it's Jen Williams's new book, uh, first in her new trilogy. Um, she's got uh,
3: again, it's it's a, it's a similar setup to um, the Copper Promise. Um, three main characters, but the probably the the titular character is like um, uh, what's her name? Vintage, and Vintage is as pretty much what you were describing. She's a scholar uh, as well as somebody who doesn't her hands dirty with her as she has a kind of mini crossbow that she jumps into the fray mm. she, she's not not woodrin she's quite different from woodrin though woodrin is a good example
0: i feel like she's kind of a female indiana jones she is and exactly <laughs> that
3: she's she's a researcher an archaeologist uh, an explorer and and kind of yep yeah, exactly it has that kind of um wildness about her that she she's completely um, um in fact actually i thought what was interesting is that it can turn out to be um, a disadvantage because she actually en- she ends up landing her companions in a whole lot of trouble uh, because she rushes headlong without you know into a situation without due consideration so she is quite like a indiana jones in that respect
0: i think also um furiosa sort of needs a, a mention here as well yes. Because, again, she's doing something, you know, she's fighting for something that's not necessarily her own cause. She's there saving those the, the wives. Uh, she's an excellent example as well. And I also think that there's quite a few comics these days that are doing a lot of interesting things with females who fight. So Rat Queens is the obvious one, which is basically Dungeons and Dragons in comic book form, where the whole party is awesome women who are all completely against kind of normal stereotypes um i love that and things like lazarus which is a really cool sort of sf um comic with uh, a woman who basically is a genetically created bodyguard for this family um so she's yeah she's badass and and she was bread for that particular perp- purpose so that's really interesting as well
3: and um haven't you read nemona as well that's a good a good narrative on the sidekick yes. um, trope that well subverted
0: yes and again you know she's this one of these kind of physically unthreatening she's short and kind of chunky looking and you know she's just not that kind of you're not expecting her to turn out to be a terrifying creature which is, is really <laughs> Dragon, fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes but as you said exactly that's another graphic
3: novel that you know is is leading the way in fact the, the one that i would quite like to read is is it um monstrous yes that's just come out yep. um th- is that a good one i
1: i've heard good things yes i quite enjoyed monstrous yeah i'm not a big graphic novel person but um I grew up uh, possibly around the same time as Juliet. I'm not sure, but um, I used to watch Battlestar Galactica when I was a kid um, with um, the fantastic gentleman who was Starbuck, whose name has temporarily escaped me.
2: Richard
1: that. Thank you. Yes. Um, and then somebody said to me, "Oh, do you know they've remade Battlestar?" And I was like, "Well, it'll never be as good as the original. And nothing will be as good as the fantastic original that informed my childhood growing up." And then I saw Katie Sackhoff (laughs) as Starbuck, and I was like, oh, she's just as good as the original. And I've always kind of liked her because she has taken on what was literally a man's role and has turned it into something incredibly likable, incredibly strong, and yet at the same time vulnerable. No hint that, you know, of motherhood as well. There's a slight hint of motherhood in one of the series, but I won't spoil that. But she was just fantastic, and I think she's a really good example of a warrior today that is female and has traditionally been male and manages to hold it up and take it in new directions that I really enjoyed.
2: I think one of the things that uh, is most important for me about Starbuck in the New Galactica is that she's one of a range of fighting women types. Um, if, because she's very different to Boomer, she is very different to the one who gets lost in the, uh, when she has to do the combat air patrol.
1: Oh, that's right,
2: with you uh, radiation as well. Yeah. Mm. And so Starbuck, if Starbuck were the smurfette of the series, <laughs> the only notable female character, then she would be the aggravating faux male who's got to outmatch her blokes. If that character was there in isolation, it would drive me nuts. The fact that she's one of a spectrum of fighting women uh, is what makes it work for me.
1: Absolutely. I think you're quite right. I mean, I do like the other characters and the the last you were talking about with the radiation. Um, and I do try not to give out spoilers in reviews and podcasts, but her ultimate fate, I just had tears running down my face because even though I really hated her up till that point, her ultimate fate, I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, but you're, you're quite right, actually, Starbuck. I suppose if I took her in isolation as the only female character, I'd probably want to punch her. But because she is balanced out by everybody else, she really has a chance to
2: shine. And also, you have a range of men who are successful and effective without necessarily all having to be super macho warriors.
1: That's true, and you have a lot of father figures in there as well, which nicely balances out the whole idea of mother figures as warriors.
2: Intergender and intergenerational dynamics in that series is something that definitely bears closer attention and rewards closer attention.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's a, a thoroughly good series for anybody who hasn't watched it. And obviously you should watch the original for the um, interesting Lycra jumpsuits and yeah. uh, the general fun.
2: <laughs> I think one of the things when you're looking back at series like that and the various inclinations of Star Trek is um, you need to appreciate their context. Um, you know, what else we had that was going on at the time. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why Xena was so effective. You know, when it came out in the cultural climate um, that that was first broadcast. That is why that had such an impact, Well, you know, apart from Lucy Lawless and a whole bunch of other things. But um, it, it's not fair to judge science fiction, either television, film or written, from a particularly decade-born standard of the, what we have now. You know, context is everything, as
1: they say. Well, I always like to look at past science fiction and fantasy as steps towards what we have now. And like the current Battlestar Galactica wouldn't actually exist if you didn't have characters like Captain Janeway um, in the right. in the past, and Buffy and Scully and all these ones that are listed in you know other and um, big long lists of things. Every I mean I know we said previously on this podcast that Buffy is problematic and she does have a a lot of issues um, even though I do think Joss Whedon is probably as close to God as you can probably get but everybody is a a step in getting us towards the brilliant characters we have now and I think I think although as Juliet highlights there are many issues and you have to take them in context I think each little step forward just takes us that little bit closer to the the ideal which is going to be men and women being equal and unfortunately this podcast probably not being relevant anymore (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, you know, um, anyone who works in conflict resolution, basically their job is to put themselves out of work as uh, fast as possible.
0: (laughs) I think that's a good aim for us to have.
2: (laughs) Yes, I I have to say that um, the day when women writers can rock up to a science fiction convention, confident in the knowledge that they will not be asked, and what is it like to be a woman writing in this field, um, can't come soon enough, and obviously the same applies to uh, races of colour and differing sexuality as well. Here,
1: so here. we look forward to inviting Juliet back to our what 65th annual reunion, <laughs> where we all discuss how fantastic it is and and how we've all come to this place.
3: And and the memory of panels called Broads with Swords has faded <laughs> to the distant
2: past. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. I, mean, I have to say, that was a cracking good panel. That was a lot of fun in Brighton, um, mostly because um, none of us on the panel were um, going to <laughs> take it as read um, that this was in any sense needed to be discussed. But um, one of the things that that panel could have benefited from was actually a man on the panel. Yeah,
3: I mean, exactly, panel parity really does need to go both ways i mean that's what feminism is all about it's it's equality between the genders
2: yeah you don't you know you don't corral um into. to uh i've just written a paper um looking at uh gender issues and Expecting women to deal with gender issues um, misses the whole point that you know, gender is all of us. Uh, parenting, childcare, is not a woman's issue. It's a parent's issue. Yeah, and 50% of them, generally speaking, roughly, are chaps.
3: Which people tend to conveniently forget. Oh,
1: mm, yeah. So what we need are more father figures on the battlefield, then, do we think, as well as mother figures, to balance it all out.
2: Certainly... Uh, yeah. Again, historically, one of the things that has exercised generals' minds is the notion of sending young men who could be their sons off to war.
1: That's an interesting concept, Juliet, the idea that um, generals were informed about sending what could be potentially their sons out, out into the, the battlefield. Are you talking in a, a fictional ideal, or are you talking from factual basis
2: you've actually yeah, read? I would be hard-pressed to cite an instance, but I know it's something I've come across in memoirs. Um, and, again, first, first-hand historical accounts that I have read. Um, but, naturally, um, at this point, I couldn't actually give you a citation.
1: Here's an interesting question. Have any of the generals been worried about sending women out because it might have been like sending their wives out to die?
2: Uh, no, but, but it's generally... Um, but, you know, the, it, this is all tied into uh, the role of a man is to protect the women and children. Um, of course, yes. Yeah, if you, and if your concept of masculinity and successful masculinity is that is integral to it, the notion that a princess could actually quite happily go out and say herself, thank you very much, if you gave her the correct training, um, rather undermines your reason for being there.
0: Just to take us out, uh, Juliet, do you want to just tell us about some of the, uh, your recent publications or anything you've got coming up?
2: Uh, My most recent publication is The Shadow Histories of the River Kingdom which is a collection of short stories and a novella in a new fantasy world that I'm developing. Um, And I'm just about at the point now I think where I'm ready to write a novel in that world. Um, And I've created a world where gender equality is integral to the cultural, religious, and political systems, and boy, do I keep tripping up over assumptions because I live in a society where none of those things actually apply. So that's proving very interesting to write. Um, my first fifteen novels are, are all available, uh, certainly as ebooks, and for live in what I do and what I write, uh, pop on to my website and say hello.
0: Wonderful. And thank you so much for coming and talking to us tonight.
2: A great pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. Check back with us in two weeks for the next episode.